Welcome back to We've Got Next Pod. I'm Julian. The single biggest issue that is facing our country and our, our world right now is climate change. And so many conversations around climate change basically have the message of we're screwed. And to some extent, we are. To some extent. And that's not a particularly productive place to start a conversation. So I wanted to try to have a slightly more optimistic conversation. Well, as optimistic of a conversation as you can really have about this topic. So I talked to Ivan Goldstein, who directs a graduate MBA program in sustainable business at Bard. His focus on business makes him think more about climate solutions and not just analyzing the problem, which I thought was a really interesting perspective to have on the podcast. So in this conversation, you're going to hear a little bit about what actions need to be taken in order to mitigate the effects of climate change. And I say mitigate because there's no more preventing them. We're past that point. They're already here. More will already come. That's a fact. So we're talking about mitigating future effects. And Yvonne Goldstein has some ideas about how the government can promote the research into and the use of clean technology and the innovation in clean, in clean technology that are already happening. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and I hope it gives you some optimism, but optimism that's grounded in an understanding and the reality of what's going to happen and what is happening. So first is why is wind and solar energy important in the fight against climate change? And just also what are the implications of growth in these sectors? Just gear this answer towards somebody who knows a little bit about climate change, but maybe not that much. Okay. Um, well, uh, global warming is something that, you know, um, let me just see how to phrase this. The, the science of global warming is really easy to understand. Uh, basically, if you think about, you know, the Earth is an apple, um, and the atmosphere is the thickness of the skin around that apple. Um, you know, for the last 120 years, we've been burning coal in our power plants, natural gas in our power plants, and gasoline in our cars, and we've been pumping billions and billions and billions of tons of carbon dioxide into that very thin atmospheric layer. Um, carbon dioxide is a well-known heat-trapping gas, um, and so the simple science of global warming is we've been wrapping the planet in a thicker and thicker blanket of carbon dioxide, um, and thicker blanket means warmer planet. Um, the light comes through that blanket, but it is reflected out as heat, can't escape. So if you think about what is the solution to global warming, it's, well, we've got to stop doing that, right? We've got to stop uh, burning fossil fuels um, and, and uh, thickening the, the atmosphere with that blanket of heat trapping gas. Um, how do we do that? Well, uh, we fortunately, you know, been working at this for 30 or 40 years and um, the costs of renewable energy have been coming down and coming down. And over the last five years, we've crossed tipping points. Um, and so we're now at a point where uh, at the utility scale, the, the, the large scale of solar production, um, we've got bids coming in in the United States for two cents a kilowatt hour, three cents a kilowatt hour. And the best that fossil fuel can do four and a half cents. So already, solar power at the utility scale is now cheaper than uh, fossil fuel can uh, can achieve. This is the same trajectory that rooftop solar is on. So within the next three, four, five years, we're going to see rooftop solar prices combined with battery storage being cheaper than getting electricity from the grid. So um, and that's going to lead to a massive wave of financing that's going to come in. You're going to see an explosion of solar power all across the world 
Um, and, and really in the next 5, 10, 15 years, you're going to see solar everywhere. In the same way that we went from you know, landlines to cell phones, uh, we're going to see this explosion, this transformation of our energy sector uh, away from a reliance on coal and natural gas for burning electricity towards solar and offshore wind and onshore wind that are seeing those same, uh, same uh, dramatic declines in cost. So two, questions, two follow-up questions to that. The first one is if solar and wind is already cheaper in a lot of circumstances than fossil fuels, why hasn't this transformation happened already? Well, partially the tipping point was just crossed in the last three to four years. Um, and uh, it is happening in solar uh, at the utility scale. Basically, no one's building new coal plants unless they're heavily subsidized by government. Uh, it's the choice of the private sector. Um, and we're seeing an explosion in offshore wind, onshore wind. So at the level of, of new power plant construction, um, you know, pretty much renewables are dominating already. A uh, few new natural gas plants being built, but General Electric used to sell natural gas turbines and they went bankrupt because no one wanted to buy those things anymore. So the market is, is transitioning really rapidly away from that. Um, at the rooftop level, you know, we're still at that tipping point. So you've got early adopters, um, but those prices are coming down and down and down. Uh, utilities are fighting this. That's part of the reason that you're not seeing an explosion in solar. California, for example, now has required that any new residential construction have rooftop solar. Um, and that's a win-win. Basically, you California customers are going to be getting electricity at two cents kilowatt hour compared to 15 or 16 that they would be paying on the grid. That's the, the trade-off. So the world is going to transform in the next five or 10 or 15 years. It's super exciting. This, yeah, that uh, feels uh, very optimistic. And do you have a sense of inevitability that in these next decade and a half, two decades, like we will transition away and like because of like the market and changing prices, climate change will like solve itself, like the market will solve it? No, because the market won't get there fast enough. Um, and there's a lot of people that don't want this transition to happen. Fossil fuel companies, uh, conventional utilities. So they're already throwing up political obstacles to this. They're saying, no, you can't install solar because blah, 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 uh, or we're going to tax solar. Um, so there's a huge fight. Um, and so people have to push uh, aggressively. And particularly, you can do this is something you can do in your town, right? You know, at your school, you can go in and say, we want solar panels on the rooftop of our school. How do we get them? Right. Or you can go to your, your town board and talk to your mayor and say, you know, we've got some obstacles to installing solar um, and we need to get those obstacles out of the way. So it is inevitable. Uh, all energy analysts are looking at what's happening with the prices of solar panels. And anybody who's serious is projecting that, you know, by 2050, 2070, there's going to be, you know, solar dominant global energy system. But we need to get there by 2035. Uh, 2030, and that really requires a push, um, and it requires all of us to be active in insisting that wherever solar and wind and battery stores can go in, that, that those things be allowed and permitted and accelerated and funded, because um, we've got to go fast. What can what can government do to push up that timeline? And in terms of transitioning from, yeah, I guess mostly about climate change. In terms of transitioning transitioning from fossil fuels to renewables. A lot of it really is sweeping away obstacles. 
Um, so it's not so, I mean, you know, there are incentives and those are great from the federal government. Um, uh, those help. Uh, but a lot of it is just really, you know, getting away rules and regulations that keep you from installing solar, that prevent you from gaining energy independence. Um, one of the challenges here in New York is that, you know, we're kind of hitting the threshold five, six, seven percent of which the kind of old fashioned grid can handle solar. Um, but people still want solar. And so, um, Right now, I can't install solar on my roof uh, if the utility says, no, that's going to screw up with our with the lines, right? But I could sign an agreement with the utility to say, well, you know what? I'm not even going to export any power into your grid. I'm going to use it all myself. I'm going to buy batteries and panels. I'm not going to put any power into the grid. Right now, that's illegal. Mm. You can't do that. So we need to get rid of that stupid law, that stupid regulation, and allow people to buy and install as much solar as they want as long as they're not going to mess with the grid function. So simple things like that. Uh, once again, you know, if you're a teenager or a middle schooler or a college student, you know, you can literally walk into your town council and, you know, open meeting and say, you know, I really want solar panels on the roof of that school over there. How do we get that done? So that's really what people need to be doing. So besides besides the red tape, there there's like a more serious opposition to any type of transformation in tackling climate change, which is the Republican Party. And could you talk a little bit about how the Republican Party turned its back on renewable energy and addressing climate change and just doubled down on fossil fuels? Because it wasn't always this way. Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen sort of an intense polarization uh, uh, in our political system over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and uh, and in particular, it's been a lot around a lot of issues, abortion, guns. Um, interestingly, though, the environment has sort of gotten swept into that. Now, historically in the U.S., we had a really strong bipartisan consensus in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. From both parties, you had leading environmentalists um, who uh, really helped establish the United States as a leader in global environmental uh, legislation and regulation. Um, and even into kind of the 2008 presidential primary, uh, the two Republican candidates who were running for president at the time, um, John McCain and Mitt Romney, had both been pretty strong advocates of action uh, on climate change. Um, but uh, in 2010, kind of the tipping point came and uh, climate change got swept up into this intense partisan divide. Um, and, you know, it became unsafe for Republicans who might otherwise have had kind of that traditional bipartisan environmental concern to speak out about issues of climate change. A lot of this had to do with fossil fuel funding. It was a very explicit strategy. Um, the fossil fuel industry contributes something like 80%, 20% Republican, Democrat. Um, and uh, so as the party got more and more anti-climate action, Climate denialism became sort of part of the, uh, you know, test to be, uh, a, you know, a serious Republican uh, office seeker. Um, people who weren't that were challenged in primaries and lost by people from the right. You saw the transformation of the party and the adoption of, you know, just flat out climate denialism throughout much of the 2010s. Now, that softened a bit now, which is good news. So you don't hear top Republicans dismissing climate change as a hoax. Um, 
actually, I read yesterday that Senator Inhofe uh, is claiming that he never said climate change was a hoax, even though he wrote a book called Climate Change is a Hoax. <laughs> so That's a lot of guts he's got. As good, as, as good news. Um, uh, uh, but uh, uh, I don't think that, I think it's really a question of sort of changing spots a little bit because, you know, now the, the, the line is, well, we can't do anything about it because it'll destroy the economy. Um, that's a better and more productive line of argument that it's not happening, but it's just impossible to deny at this point. I mean, you know, the Western forests are burning down, um, you know, massive heat waves. I was, my, my daughter-in-law lives in Portland, Oregon. Uh, this year, they had 116 degree temperatures in that city. Wow. That broke the record, you know, not by a degree or two, but by seven degrees. It was seven degrees hotter in Portland, Oregon than it has ever been, as far as we know, ever. Right in the last hundred twenty thousand years, so uh, so now I think the line of argument has shifted a bit, and this is reflecting, I think, also the rise of renewables, uh, because in spite of that anti-climate rhetoric, you know, you see red states like Iowa and Texas, you know, being global leaders in um, uh, wind energy. You know, Georgia is a top ten solar state, and the utilities in Georgia have really embraced utility-scale solar. They're fighting rooftop uh, because that's more challenging to their business model, but they, they're building lots of utility-scale solar. So um, I think the economic potential associated with renewables um, is beginning to soften opposition, uh, even, even in red states. So the flip side of the path the Republican Party has taken is the Democratic Party. In 2011, I think it was, with one of your old pieces that I read, um, you talked about how the National Democrats talk a good game, but they don't really have any pressure to deliver, and therefore they don't really deliver on clean energy. Have, yeah. And now there's a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill that does a lot, I would, some people say, I don't know what you think about that, to address climate change. So how have you seen the Democratic Party change in the last 10 years, and why has this happened? Well, you know, I think we have to give Obama some significant credit. Um, because the 2009 um, uh, uh, budget that was designed as a recovery budget out from the from the financial crash did uh, put a lot of money into green energy. Um, Tesla, for example, got loan guarantees uh, that really helped them start that business uh, through government support, um, and now they're you know bigger than Exxon. Um, so that's a dramatic success story as a consequence of government policy. Um, but, you know, because of, you know, essentially because of, you know, intense Republican opposition, Democrats haven't really been able to do much at the national level because they haven't been able to do much at the national level. They put it kind of on the back burner, like, you know, they sort of have a pass because what can you do? Um, but now they can potentially. Right. And so, um, I, I think that. In the last five or six years, I just think the level of urgency among uh, everybody has ramped up as it should, um, and so you're seeing, you know, leading uh, Democratic uh, political leaders really putting a stake in the ground around this as as saying we're going to do a lot. We'll see whether they get it done, frankly, um, because again, they only have a very slim majority in the House. But I think the other thing is 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 sort of an increasing recognition. In the 2000s and, and even into the 2010s, you know, the focus was really on let's pass a bill that caps carbon. 
you know. So let's let's figure out how to control this pollutant that's coming from the electricity sector and from the transportation sector. Um, and California did that, and they're they're moving down that road. The Europeans have done that with their uh, European trading system, um, and that was the effort. But I think now there's a recognition that this is bigger than that, right? You can't just cap carbon. You've actually got to rebuild the underlying economy, right? You've got to figure out how to deploy renewables incredibly fast. You've got to figure out how to move away from gasoline-powered cars to electric vehicles really fast. Um, and so it's more become more of a conversation about industrial policy and technology than it has been about let's just put a cap on carbon and let industry figure out how to reduce emissions. Do you think that... I think that's good. Yeah. Is what is being talked about right now in terms of like the 3.5 number or a number around that and the provisions in it, is that, it will, will that meet the deadline that you mentioned earlier of 2030 or 2035? You know, I don't, I don't think anybody knows. Um, you know, we're in a race to stop global warming and that's the good news. You know, we haven't lost yet. And, and, you know, we just need to throw everything at it um, and see how fast we can move the needle. Um, so it really is a lot of it has to do with what are the market dynamics and, and how fast are these prices falling? What are the financial barriers to, you know, getting the money together? You know, you might save money over the long run with solar and you might start saving money in two or three years, but you still have to come up with that 10,000 bucks or that 20,000 bucks to install a system, right? So you got to have the financing systems in place to overcome the higher upfront cost. Um, a lot of moving pieces. Um, I think, um, you know, the big issue uh, on transport is really the question of charging stations, right? Infrastructure. Um, uh, if we're really going to, uh, you know, substantially replace internal combustion engines with electric vehicles in 10, 15 years, that charging infrastructure really has got to get built out. Um, and that's not something that the market will do. So after asking about all these macro politics, um, you now run a MBA program about sustainable business. What can, what's the role of business in all this, and how can, how can businesses be part of the path to cutting carbon emissions? You know, people often think of business as the problem, not the solution, right? Because businesses pollute, um, they can you know, uh, degrade resources, use up resources, uh, they uh, can exploit workers and communities, right? Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's three ways to change the world. Um, there's education, that's changing minds. There's policy, that's changing rules, you know, at the governmental level. Um, but then there's changing the game. And no matter how many rules we change, and no matter how many minds we change, ultimately business has got to figure out how to do this, right? How do we keep the lights on, get food on the table in ways that radically, radically reduce emissions of global warming pollutants? And we got to cut them 80, 90 percent, you know, within the next three decades and 50 percent in the next decade. Uh, but not just that, right? We've got plastic pollution in the ocean. We've got air toxics. We've got access to clean water from Americans and the billions of other people around the planet. Um, how do we get this done? Um, and that's really the role of business. Um, and so we need business leaders who uh, really want to figure out you know, how to, to do this, how to build businesses that are in business to solve these social and environmental problems. 
Got to make money, of course, because if you don't, you can't pay your workers, you can't get resources to scale. But at the end of the day, how do you put a mission first and, and sustainability first and then have financial success follow? Are there any so businesses? Are, are, sorry, go ahead. Are there any businesses right now that you can point to that are doing this work? A lot of them are on the journey, right? And nobody's perfect. Um, but um, I, I first got interested in this because a friend of mine was the sustainability director at Cliff Bar. Um, it's an interesting company. They explicitly manage for five bottom lines. Um, uh, so I can remember them. They they've got uh, a planet uh, people. Um, and that includes their employees, their communities, uh, their brand. So they kind of want a sort of brand integrity, something that they think a lot about, and then uh, sort of uh, profitability. Um, and they've got senior executives who represent those different viewpoints. And so whenever they're making business decisions, they all come into a room and they figure out, okay, how can we integrate these different perspectives in the uh, pursuit of business success? You've got this whole structure of B Corps that have been set up, right, to, uh, as a way to kind of formalize the process of the road towards sustainability. And there's a checklist of things around water and climate and uh, diversity and pay equity and all that stuff. Um, and uh, mostly small companies, but, uh, you know, Danone, which is a very big North American and global brand, has become a B Corp. Actually, our marketing professor in the MBA program was just appointed CEO of B Labs that runs B Hmm. So there's a transition underway. There's huge interest in the financial sector in uh, investing in so-called ESG products that have you know uh, superior environmental, social, and governance performance. So this is a revolution um, uh, underway in business now. It's very exciting. Our MBA program was ranked number one green MBA this year by Princeton Review. We're one of the few that's fully integrating this focus on mission-driven business and sustainability into a core MBA to try and train people to actually do this. Um, and it's hard, right? Because there are trade-offs, there are compromises. But how do you, in that arena, keep moving forward? Um, one concrete example, um, uh, two years ago, Etsy, the online retailer uh, that does crafts, um, committed to going carbon neutral in their shipping. So what does that mean? Shipping is 95% of their global warming footprint. Um, and how are they doing that? Well, they're buying high quality offsets. So they're planting trees, they're building windmills to, so that for every ton of carbon they emit, they're reducing a tarbon, kind of tarbon, ton of carbon somewhere else in the economy. That happened because one of our MBA graduates got an internship with Etsy in her capstone year, dreamed up this idea they liked it. They hired her on as an on their energy team. Four years later, she was the chief sustainability officer, and she had the power and ability to pursue that vision and implement it. What I like most about it was the day they did it, they actually offset the emissions of the entire online shipping industry, including Amazon, just to show it could be done. And I think in the next year or two, every major online shipper is, shipper is going to have to move in this direction, right? Because consumers are saying, look, you know, great, I can get packages at my door anytime, but what is that doing to the environment? You guys have an obligation to do this as responsibly as you can. Pressure is going to be on. I think that will be table stakes for this industry. So in this case, one person, right, with a vision will have changed a major, major footprint of a major, major sector in the economy uh, through her pioneering work. So that's what you can do in the business space. 
think there's a lot of opportunity. I love that. And I think that's a really good and optimistic note to end on. So thank, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. That's all for today. I hope you enjoyed and make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.